John chapter 13, 21 through 30. John 13, 21 through 30. I don't know exactly how you're supposed to feel about the sermon today. Um, I think that it is revealing in regards to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it is alarming in regards to Judas. And I think it's dumbfounding in regards to the disciples. That's kind of the thoughts I had about the three sections of this sermon. But uh, hopefully it will be profitable to you. I will assure you that if you're listening or take these things seriously, that the issue with Judas will be problematic uh, for us today. All right, so uh, in order to start the sermon, I don't know if this is good or bad, but I thought maybe I'd give you an introduction that had to do with Christmas. That's all I could come up with today. It's stuff about Santa Claus baffles me. I thought maybe it'd be safe since none of you are all that worried about Christmas this morning. But this philosophy that is behind Christmas has invaded the church, although sometimes we're not aware of it. Santa is supposedly watching everything you do. You, you know some of this from childhood. He knows whether you've been naughty or nice. Are you, are you with me? He knows whether you're waking or sleeping, right? He knows whether you've been good or bad. Here's the line. So be good for goodness sake. But you and I, let's just be honest, you know there's a bunch of snot-nosed brat rebellious kids out there that get presents on December the 25th. Why? Because, you know, I mean, Santa's at the end of the day, he's going to come to your house. That's, I mean, that's what we all know and believe. The problem is, is we've pulled that into Christianity, and we think that no matter how we live, that there's always an opportunity you can get right with Jesus. He's always come by, and he'll always forgive you, and he'll always save you if you just want to be saved. But is that actually true? I wonder if there's any books out there written, the title, Christmas, the subtitle, You've Been Bad and Satan, is, I mean, San, Satan, and Santa is never coming to your house again. Boy, that won't sell, will it? I see Satan and Santa's synonyms, I'm sorry, at night. All right, so keep that, I mean, whatever it's worth, it will resurface in some regard with Judas, but... Does Jesus always come by your house, whether you've been good or bad? We'll look at that later. But as we look at this passage today, John 13, 21 through 30, a few things I do want you to hopefully see is the deity and the humanity of Christ. And it's important to see those differences when the Scripture brings them out. Secondly, I do want you to be able to see the danger of pretending to be Christian, the danger of pretending. And then lastly, I want you to be reminded, and I think this is the case, that when your focus remains on yourself, you'll be confused not only about what Christ is doing, you'll be confused about what all of Christendom is doing. That's their problem in this passage. That's why they're confused. The 11 is because they're only looking in the mirror and they can't understand Christ, Judas, or themselves. So it's a danger for all of us. All right, let's look at the text without further ado. Verse 21. After these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified or he said these things. Amen, amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Now then, after he had taken the morsel, Satan 
entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should, some, uh, he should give something <clears throat> to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Father in heaven, we do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would make this word profitable to us, that we would benefit from its truth. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You will notice in verse 21, this will be, you can look on the back of your bulletin if you have one. I'm going to take the verse orders a little bit differently as I go through the text, but we will take the first one first, verse 21. And the thing that stands out to us is the fact that Jesus was troubled, troubled to cause inward turmoil, to stir up, to disturb, to unsettle, to throw in a state of confusion, if you will. So if nothing else, at least as we embark on this sermon, know that Jesus is not a robot. He's not just going mechanically through things. There are some people who have such a theology or such a doctrine that it seems they have no emotion whatsoever in them. Well, Christ was not this way. Several times we find that he is troubled. I want you to at least see the humanity of Christ in verse 21. The humanity that's being brought out is the actions of those around him actually do affect him. He is troubled. We find in John 11, he actually does weep. He does have an emotional content, and what people do or don't do actually have an effect upon him. So the text does emphasize the aspect of his humanity. The act of betrayal, the misunderstanding of the 11, they actually do cause a turmoil inside of him. It does bother him. Part of Christ's sufferings, we think about the suffering of Christ, we think about a cross, and rightly so. We think about uh, being whipped at the whipping post. We, we think about being spit upon. We think about being mocked. All of those things are true, but suffering also includes betrayal. It does hurt when a close associate stabs you in the back. It, it does hurt when a close associate sells you out to the highest bidder. These things are a part of Christ's sufferings. And I just want to remind you, as I remind myself, it is not wrong to feel affected by those around you that have taken a wrong course. Actually, I would say to you, it ought to be natural for a Christian that if you know a brother or sister, at least a professed brother and sister in the Lord, who turn away from biblical church, truth, who turn away from a biblical church, who go contrary to the ways of God, it is somewhat normal that you would be saddened. Why? Because you don't want them to be destroyed. You don't want them to turn away. You don't want them to be destroyed. And so it does actually hurt watch other people in a downward spiral. Jesus understood this, and his spirit was troubled. This word, I just want to bring out the sense of it, but you might remember a ways back in John chapter 5, and the man at the pool of Bethesda, he, he couldn't get in the water. There was this theory that an angel would stir the water and the first one in would then be healed. Well, he was lame and he couldn't get in. But the point of why I'm saying that is because this word is used there. The water would be stirred up. It was a, a turmoil or a rippling effect in the water. That's the same word that is used here. But most recently, you can turn there in your Bibles. It's not far. But John 11, you'll remember when Lazarus died. And we spent a lot of time on this. But let me just remind you of it. John eleven thirty three, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
And I spent a long time trying to tell you he was greatly troubled and broken because they could not see the glory of God in action. He was troubled because they missed the whole point of the endeavor that was going on. So there he was troubled. Also, in John chapter 12, we saw it in verse 27. And this is when he's concerned about his impending death. John 12, 27, Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. He's facing the wrath of God. He's facing the abandonment of all of his closest associates. And so knowing the events that are about to take place, he is troubled. Then you will see Jesus, not only is he troubled, but he's the one who can negate troubling in your heart. So he experiences a troubling, but he's such a deity, not just humanity, he's also God, he can also be the one who negates your troubled heart. So look in John 14, 1. You know this if you've ever been to a funeral, it's like the only verse in the Bible preachers know. And he says this, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. Belief in Christ can negate the troubling of your heart. And then also he tells them again in John 14, verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The one who is troubled at the betrayal of Judas and the confusion of the eleven is the same one who can calm your troubled heart and take away your fear. So in that, I see the humanity of Christ and I see the deity of Christ both at work. Now, Judas' act was certainly an act of an unbeliever, and he is going to be met with the severest of judgments. You see it there in verse 21. If, you, if I can reset the scene for just a moment, there's 12 men gathered around Jesus. They're all around this deal. They're laying on their sides. They're eating bread together. They're drinking together. They're fellowshipping together. We're all in this unity together. And, and, and it's like there's this real close association. John's leaning on Jesus' breast. They're all very near unto Jesus. And it's like a shot in the dark. It's like a, a bolt of lightning breaks into the room. You're, imagine yourself in that situation, and the king of glory says very clearly, one of you will betray me. Everything in this room now becomes quiet in a sense. There's tension here. One of you will betray me. Not might betray me, not possibly could betray me, but one of you will. Now, everything Jesus has said to these guys has come out exactly like Jesus said every time. And now he's saying one of us is going to betray him. It's almost like each one of them is brought face-to-face with Christ, and these words are penetrating to the core of their being. So that's what's going on in this room. One of you will betray me. Now, I do want to note at least one thing, and we'll move on quickly. But I see a difference between Peter's betrayal and Judas's betrayal. In the life of Peter... Under pressure and the heat of the moment, he does deny knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. But his denial under that pressure and his failure is met with restoration. You see that at the end of this gospel, and he'll be restored and greatly used in the early church. Whatever went on with that betrayal with Peter is not what went on with Judas. Judas has plotted Judas is intentional. Judas has made a plan for his own selfish heart. And there is no restoration on the other side, but there is certainly condemnation. So I would encourage you to examine yourself, to make very sure that any betrayal you commit in regards to Christ is not synonymous with Judas. 
There's a lot of selling of Jesus going on every day. Does this anymore? People do this every day. They sell out Jesus for relationships. They sell out Jesus for money. They sell out Jesus for positions. They sell out Jesus for personal pleasure. They sell out Jesus for selfish gratification. Make sure in your life that you don't have a record ongoing of selling out Christ to the highest bidder in order to profit your personal desire. It is dangerous business to sell out Jesus in order to gratify yourself. We're in danger of that every day. You say, look, I didn't go to the religious leaders and give 30 pieces of silver. No, but you would do this in order to pocket money at the expense of Christ. These things go on. And there's many of us that will even hold our tongue because things might get uneasy in our job if we were bold and clear about our position with Christ. So we sell him out in order to avoid the controversy. Just be cautious that you're not in the vein of Judas and end up pushing this thing too far. Now, verse 26 and 27 and verse 30, let's look at this traitor and hopefully we can learn something profitable from his disasterly decisions. Verse 26 and 27, Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Then look at verse 30. After receiving the morsel of bread... He immediately went out, and it was night. This is the traitor Judas. I wrote a devotional a lot long ago. I'll reiterate it here once again. If we take the King James Version, they use the word sop, S-O-P, instead of bread. Judas received the sop, but not the love. Think about it. Judas received the sop, but not the love. Now, if we make it spiritual in this sense, when it comes to the preaching of the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, that's our bread, that's our sustenance. Even in the life of this church, there's the great danger that week after week you can receive the sop, but not receive the love. You say, well, in what way did he not receive the love? When love is received, love is reciprocated. Love is returned. You cannot, I hope not, you cannot engage in a healthy marriage unless you receive love from the person. When you receive love from the person, you naturally return love back into them. That makes a loving relationship. It's called biblical marriage. And love endures all things. Love is patient. Love is kind. It goes through all of these things because love is reciprocated when it's received. Judas just takes the sop. The love is not received. You never see Judas restoring or returning the love. Not only not back to Christ, he never does it for the other 11. It's never reciprocated because it's never received. Notice this about Judas. He never washes anybody's feet. He never serves Christ beyond this moment. You never see him serve Christ. He never endures to the end. He never submits to the authority of Christ. Never. There he is, right in the very room. There eating bread right out of Jesus' hand, taking the sop but not receiving any love with it. That's the distinguishing mark between him and the other 11. They may be confused, they may get a lot of things wrong, but they knew Jesus loved them, and they returned that love, and you'll see that in the rest of their lives, especially if you go through the book of Acts, you'll see it. 
but you'll never see it in Judas. May it be a warning to you. It's not good enough to just receive the sop on Sunday. If it does not get reciprocated in some way, you put yourself in this category as a sop eater and a love rejecter. Now, Judas has become demon-possessed. Think about it. You can see it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it shares this same story with some different tidbits here and there. But think about Judas. Now that he's demon-possessed, you know, Satan enters him right then. Think about the question he asked in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 25. This little bitty room, 12 men. One of you is going to betray me. Judas knows what he's already done. He knows what he's plotted. In Matthew, it says, Judas asked. He looks at Jesus. Is it I? He knows good and well it's him. But do you see the evil nature of what humanity can progress to? Have you, have you ever been lied to? Have you ever been lied to in church? you ever lied to the preacher? The preacher ever lied to you? You say, how could they do that? Judas lied face to face to Christ. Evil is so blinding that a man can be brought to the point, oh, is it I? It, it certainly couldn't be me. That's his attitude while he's taking bread from the hand of the Savior, pretending to be one of the disciples. Satan has taken residence in Judas. Judas had walked the line of being a disciple and a traitor too long, and now he has given himself over. Note to you and to me, it is dangerous to play religion for too long. No one, here's where this Santa Claus story gets messed up. No one knows the day when Satan will enter and take over. It happened this day for Judas. There's more days to come. There's more time. But this time and now is all going to be different. When Satan entered Judas... It's too late. It's over. There's no more words of redemption ever spoken by Christ to Judas. Three years under the lips of the Son of God, redemption, love, patience, kindness, goodness, wisdom. And now at this moment, after rejection, 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 there's not one more word of redemption ever uttered to Judas. Oh yeah, in the garden, he says something. He says something like this. <laughs> Did you betray me? I mean, there's no words of redemption in that. It's just, a, just an exposing of who he is. You'll remember this from the Apostle Paul, and it needs to be said here in our sermon. The devil has the ability to blind somebody's mind to the truth. Paul says it this way, quote, In their case, the God of this world has blinded them. Blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Why would he do that? To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of of God. You, you, I know we say this often, but you, you look out in the world and say, how can they do that? How can they do that? And then even within church life, somebody will inevitably do something that you're like, I cannot believe someone would do something like that. How is that even possible? When the God of this world blinds them, they are blind. Not only do they do the most heinous of things, they don't even see it as heinous. I don't even think here at this moment Judas even realizes the magnitude of his own self-destruction. He thinks he's pocketing 30 pieces of silver for his own good. That's how blind he is. It's like, we say stuff like this, how can they not believe Christ? You go out on the streets there yesterday, many of the guys went out on the streets and Asa, it's like, you might want to say, how can they not see the goodness of Christ? Because they're blind. 
not only blind out in the world, but it happens in the church, and it happens in your family, and it happens at your workplace. And you're like, how do these people not get it when you're blind? (laughs) Our text says in verse 30, And it was night. Received this morsel of bread. Immediately he went out. It was night. When Judas received the sop, he immediately went out. He's now under the control of the devil. Note this from William Hendrickson. Jesus had not been heeded. Now... They will no longer be issued. Think of the weight of this. Jesus warned and warned and warned. Think about all the gospel teaching Judas had heard. The narrow way. Turn, repent, take up your cross daily. All these glorious truths. Warning after warning after warning. And Judas didn't heed them. And because he didn't heed them, now Jesus says, I won't issue no more warnings. It's, it's almost like you could word it this way. Go. And do what you want to do. The worst words you could ever hear from the lips of Christ. You want to live life on your own? Go live it up. What a terrible thing to be let go from the one who is only the one who can save you. William Hendricks went on to say this. Jesus is through with Judas. Now the danger exists. Now... Everybody in the room, it all exists for all of us, whether saved or lost. The danger exists here because the gospel is preached, the word of God is open and proclaimed every week. We have people reject, 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 reject. The point can come that there's no more warning given. This crazy thought that we're unwilling to grapple with, that Jesus could be through with you. He said, well, a lot of us in here are Christian. This is the danger here for us. We, we, we want to be the optim, optimist of the world. And we, we want to believe the best about our grandma, and we want to believe the best about our uncle and our cousin and, our, and, and all these people within our family and our moms and our dads. We want to believe the best because they're basically good people. And, and you know, God knows they're trying. And at least, I mean... That they're going to the Jehovah Witness place, and I know they're going to this other Catholic thing over here, but at least they're going to church. And we say things like that, and it's like, hey, well, I mean, you know, I mean, Jesus, isn't he kind of like Santa? I mean, in the end, he'll come back around and visit and do good to them, right? What if Jesus says he's done? There's 11 people in this room in my passage who were optimists in regards to Judas. Nobody thought it was Judas. They all believed the best. He comes to all the meetings. He cares for all the money. He goes on all the mission trips. He's always doing well. Surely it can't be him. Oh, well, Jesus just gave him bread, and he got up and left. Oh, well, he's probably going to go buy some more food. He probably went to McDonald's to get us a burger. Look at the optimism of these guys. Oh, no, no. well, if it's not that, he's probably just went out to give some money to the poor. He's always so concerned with helping people that are poor. That's how optimistic they were. They were so optimistic, they never confronted him about his hypocrisy and his lack of repentance and faith in Christ. And that's what we do. We optimistically help family and coworkers to hell, believing the best about them and about their relationship with Christ. Surely they're American. They'll make it to heaven. I mean, they're basically good. They come to work every day. I mean, when I was growing up, my cousin got me a Christmas present. I'm sure they're pretty good people. And we optimistically assume these things. And that's what these 11 had done. Think about this, though. Now it was night. Our text tells us so. Everything... (laughs) Everything the the word night means in John's writing becomes true of Judas immediately. Think of these things. John 6, 70. Judas is a pretender. 
He pretended to be a true disciple, John 6, 70 and 71. He pretended to care for the poor, John 12. He pretended when he said, is it not I, Rabbi? Is it I? It can't possibly be me. Judas walked in darkness. John says in 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in the darkness, we... We lie, and we don't know the truth. And this is Judas. He's lying this whole time. He's a pretender. Judas did not love the brothers. 1 John 2, 9. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. You look at this passage. You look at what follows this passage. Judas never cared for the other eleven. Never cared for them at all. Never did anything for them beyond this point. There's no love between Judas and these 11. I don't even think, actually I would say, I would go this far to say, I know he got up and left that room and he didn't even tell them bye. He flat didn't care about anybody but himself. Judas does not know his future. 1 John 2.11, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness And he does not know where he's going. Doesn't know where he's going. Why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. People in your family and in your world out here where we live, they don't even know where they're going. They have no idea. They're blind. This is the way Judas was. And then at a crucial time in history, Judas stumbles. John 11.10 says this, If anyone walks in the night, anybody that walks in the night, he stumbles. Why? Because the light is not in him. Everything John says about darkness is true about Judas. William Hendrickson, just one more time, quote, It was night when Judas left that room. It was night outside. It was night also in the heart of Judas. Or perhaps it sounds a little differently from D.A. Carson. It's a rough paraphrase. Even though the paschal moon was shining in its full, Judas was swallowed up by an awful darkness. And then according to the scriptures, D.A. Carson goes on to say, Judas was heading To his own place. Does it bother you that there may be some in your family, your work, even within the confines of this church, that are on their way to their own place? You refuse to submit to Christ today, it could be the first day of permanent darkness for you. You have no guarantee that you'll ever see light again. You have no guarantee you'll ever hear the truth again. External religious perfections will never fix a corrupt heart. Judas modeled external perfection. It had no effect in fixing his deprived heart. It's always dangerous to look at Pilgrim's Progress, but let us be reminded of the iron cage one more time. Christian asked the man in the iron cage, how did you get in this condition? He's he's locked up in this cage. He's miserable. He's dark. How did you get in this condition? He says, I left off to watch and be sober. I laid the reins upon the neck of my lust. I sinned against the light of the Word. I sinned against the goodness of God. I have grieved the Holy Spirit, and He is gone. I've tempted the devil, and He has come to me. I have provoked God to anger, and He has left me. I have so hardened my heart that I cannot repent. Christian says, is there no hope? but that you must be kept in this iron cage of despair? And the man says, no, there's no hope at all. Christian says, why? I mean, God's merciful. 
God's merciful. I mean, isn't there some hope here? He says, I have crucified to myself, him to myself afresh. I've despised his person. I've despised his righteousness. I have counted his blood as an unholy thing. I have done despite to the spirit of grace. Therefore, I have shut myself out of all the promises. And there now remains to me nothing but threatenings, dreadful threatenings, fearful threatenings of certain judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour me as an adversary. And Christian asked an interesting question. For what was it that you brought yourself into this condition? Think about Judas. If we ask Judas, why did you bring yourself into this condition? And all Judas can say is, well, I was going to get 30 pieces of silver. What do people bring themselves into this condition for? For a little fleshly gratification? For a little pocket change? For a promotion on a job? What would you bring yourself into this condition for? Well, this man answers openly and honestly. Here's why he did it. For lust, pleasures, and profits of this world, the enjoyments of which I did then promise myself much delight. Learn from this man. But now every one of those things that he wanted to get delight out of, every one of those things, he says, now they bite me. They gnaw me like a burning worm. Christian, he's still hanging out on the Santa Claus mentality. But can't you now repent and turn? I mean, salvation is based upon your response here, right? Can't you now repent now that you recognize this? This is the most alarming part of this whole book. The man responds, God hath denied me repentance. His word gives me no encouragement to believe. Yea, I've shut myself up in this iron cage, nor can all the men in the world let me out. Let it ring in your ears and resonate in your heart. He says, Oh, eternity! Oh, eternity, oh, eternity, how shall I grapple with the misery that I must meet with in eternity? You know what Christian said? This is fearful. This is fearful. To think the day would come that you would reject, someone you know would reject long enough, that no more warnings would be given. And Christ would never pass this way again. You say, I don't know if I believe your theology or your doctrine. That's fine. You have to work that out between you and God. But you must know this. He never visits Judas again. There's never a redemptive word ever given to Judas again. What you're going to do, do quickly. Immediately he went out. And it was night. Now, I I envy people that are optimists. I do, because I'm not one. I understand that, and I can't seem to get over that. However, it can be a dangerous thing when it comes to the souls of men. I warn all of us. I, I think it's great to give people the benefit of the doubt. I wish people would give me the benefit of the doubt in some of the 20 years of ministry I've done. I, I wish that some people would be gracious like that. I think it's a good thing, and it can be helpful. We'd give people the benefit of the doubt. But when it comes to their soul, just here, it, don't give them the benefit of the doubt and give them a pass to heaven and be unwilling to communicate with them about their soul. Look, it's not wrong, it's not mean to look at your grandma this year at family vacation or at the Christmas time or the Thanksgiving and say, Grandma, would you recount to me how you came to saving faith in Christ? It's not wrong to ask that question. You know what grandma might do? She might tell you one of the most glorious conversion stories you've never heard. Or she might clam up and get offended, and then you have some confirmation that maybe grandma's not really converted, she's just a nice old lady. I had a seminary professor one time. He gave us a book. 
I don't even know what the book said. It was way beyond my pay degree. I had no idea. And then we, he has had a chapter called the hermeneutical spiral. I still don't know what that chapter means. I don't have the foggiest clue. I read the chapter. I didn't know nothing. I don't even know anything I read. So it, apparently nobody in the class did either. So they got the guy that wrote the chapter to come to the class to explain the chapter. I was more confused after he explained it than when I read it. And so me being the evangelist guy sitting on the front row, I raised my hand. He goes, yes. I said, can you tell me when you came to repentance and faith in Christ? It's a fair question. The guy got mad and rebuked me. And I thought, okay, I'm not going to assume that you're saved, obviously, because it may not be that just because you're a seminary professor, you've been born again. And so optimism can't dangerous. I'm not saying be mean. I'm not saying be judgmental. I'm saying that somebody in this room should have cared enough about Judas's heart to ask him where he stood with the Lord, and they didn't. And I want to know why. Why do these 11 not care about Judas's soul? That's what I want to know. I want to, I want to know how a band of men, of 12 men, can walk around on this earth sitting under the feet of Jesus, doing missions and ministry and doing signs and wonders and do all these things together and go two by two, door by door, and witness of the gospel of Christ. I want to know how they can do that and not know that Judas is a traitor. I want to understand what's going on. How can you be in church and walk along beside people for year after year after year and then all of a sudden they turn up completely apostate and you're like what just happened i want to know how that happens i think my text tells me so look at verse 22 through 25 this last one is far shorter than the second one so we'll be fine the disciples looked at one another they're uncertain about whom jesus spoke one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Simon Peter motions to him and asks Jesus of whom he was speaking. And then 25, so that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Nobody knows. Verse 28, now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that it because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him to buy what they need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. The disciples, in effect, are saying, Surely not I, Lord. They're confused. The Greek word, be at a loss. That'd be in a confused state of mind. To be in doubt, to be uncertain. Let me give you two contexts where this is used. You remember Herod, uh, when he heard John preach. When he heard John preach... He was greatly perplexed. He couldn't figure this all out. Then also the Apostle Paul was perplexed by those in Galatia. He said, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed concerning you. I'm confused. That's the way these 11 are in regards to this one who would betray Jesus. They're confused. They cannot figure out which one is it is? None of them is saying, like John doesn't go, is it Peter? And Peter doesn't go, is it Matthew? And Matthew doesn't go, is it Bartholomew? Not like that. Is it I? Is it I? They don't even know if it's their own heart, much less whether or not it's Judas. It seems from this passage that nobody around this room truly and legitimately searches their own heart before God to get clarity. Now, I don't know if they knew the text or not, but Psalm 139, maybe they should have done this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. That would have been a good response. But they're so clueless that Peter tells John, who's over there leaning upon the Lord's breast, ask who he's talking about. They understand from this conversation with Judas that he's somehow getting food or being mission-minded for the poor. Here's what the th issue is. Here, and I think in church, in our life today, the reason why some people don't have a clue what Jesus is doing and the reason why 
people don't have a clue what's going on in the lives of one another that we go to church together with. We don't know each other's hurts. We don't know each other's joys. We don't really know one another genuinely. And so we're not moved by other circumstances in other people's lives. So this happens, that happens. We're, we're clueless to what goes on around us, and we're clueless to what Jesus is doing most of the time. The reason why is, is because we're so self-absorbed that we never take the time to honestly love others more than ourselves. We never put the other person first with genuine concern for them. They're not concerned with Judas. They're not concerned with that. They're concerned with this statement, but really, ultimately, they're concerned with their own selves and what this means if it's them. They're not concerned with anybody outside of themselves. They completely miss Christ's purpose here. They completely miss the fact that he's pointing to the cross and laying down his life on Calvary. They miss what's going on with Judas. They miss all of it because these guys have this innate quality of looking in the mirror and having a discussion, according to Luke, about which one of them is the greatest. We're sitting around a room trying to figure out who's the greatest when you got a guy in the room who's about to sell his soul to the devil and go to hell. Do you, you see this? We're so concerned about ourselves that our next the guy sitting beside us is on his way to hell. And we don't, not only do we not know it, we don't even care. We just say, well, he'll probably be all right. Santa will come by his house next year. And so we, we just optimistically assume all of that, just like these disciples. And so if you get anything out of this sermon, I pray that you would get this profitably, that these 11 learn from them to not be so self-absorbed. Do you know the heart of your spouse? Do you know the heart of your children, your grandchildren? Do you know if they're going to heaven or hell? Do you know your coworker? You've been working in the same cubicle for 14 years and you've not asked them about their relationship with Christ? Are you so self-absorbed you don't care if they go to hell just as long as you go to heaven? What kind of callous people are we that we wouldn't be more moved by the souls of men and women? Look, there's children all over this church who've not repented, who've not believed, who've not been baptized. They've never taken communion because they're outside of Christ. They're strangers and they're aliens. How is it that we don't weep for their souls? How is it that we're not moved? How is it that we're not somehow affected by the lostness in our church, around our church? How is it that we're so self-absorbed that we've lost compassion for those on their way to hell? He was on his way to his own place and nobody reaches out. Nobody. It happens all the time in our own lives, in our own religious circles. It was a great, this optimism is a great danger to evangelism. You know, every grandma's going to heaven. That's basically the mentality that we believe. Now, there's a lot of godly grandmas. My grandmother's a godly grandmother. There's a lot of them that are not godly. They might be good people, they're just not saved. What are some ways to know if someone else is a true follower of Jesus Christ? I encourage you to read the book of 1 John. You read 1 John, that's who true believers are. That's who they are. It's very, very clear in 1 John. Who's a true believer? Those who actually and practically exhibit love for the brethren. That's who believers are. They walk in the light. They have a lifestyle that is attended with light. They have a love, listen to this, and we're, we're done. They have a love for Christ, a love for His Word, and a love for His church. And they endure to the end. That's what believers do. How many people do you know that went to a church when they were a teenager, a kid, they got saved and baptized, they departed, and they've lived like hell for 30 years, and they've never come back to church. Stop kidding yourself. They're not Christian. His purpose and grace, when He starts a work, He finishes a work. He brings them unto godliness. He sanctifies them. He conforms them. You say, well, you know, I mean, they went to church for five years when they were in high school. I know they haven't been in 30 years, but they're all right. They're not all right. They're not okay. There's nothing biblical about that. There's no gospel to that. When God saves a man, he changes their nature. 
And then they have a love for God, they have a love for His Word, and they have a love for His church. You say, well, this person don't have any of that. That's because they don't have a converted heart. When God converts someone, they're changed. They're not perfect, but they're definitely thoroughly changed in nature. I ask a couple of questions to close. Are you living an external life that has no inward Christian reality? Second, are you so caught up in yourself that you do not understand what's going on in the lives of people around you? Does your Christianity call you to follow Christ no matter the consequences here on earth? Do you resemble Judas or the eleven? You say, man, they didn't get it. <laughs> they didn't depart. They stayed with it, and you follow them out. They went from confusion to confidence. They went from confounded to clarity. You see that in their life. Is that what is happening in you? Are you that person that's growing? Is it happening? If not, question your own heart. I take application of this own sermon. I say, I don't want to assume anybody in this room to heaven. I don't want to assume myself into heaven. My scripture says I'm to examine myself to see whether or not I'm in the faith. I need to examine where I'm at. What's my heart? I need to go before God and pray and seek His faith. You say, well, you're a preacher. It don't give you a pass. Many a preacher are now in hell. I mean, you don't get a pass because you're a pastor. Examine your heart. Weigh things out. Are you growing? Is there sanctification? Is love for God and His church and His Word, is it increasing? Do you have a love for the brethren? Is it growing? Do you repent? Do you have faith? Is your life being molded into the image of Christ? Are these things happening to you? Or are you just Judas pretending along? It's vastly important for your eternity Examine these things and work them out before God for your own soul and for the souls of those around you. Let us pray. As Brother Jeff comes. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the revealing of the humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for the alarming word of the optimism of the eleven and the tragedy of the life of Judas, that it would increase our concern for souls. And I thank you, Lord, for these discombobulated, confused disciples who are just like us many times, but yet there's hope and growth and fruit and love that we see later on in their lives that is beautiful, meaning there's hope for us Days we are confused and discombobulated, but you never give up on your children. We thank you for these things. May we learn from them. And Lord, if there's someone in this room today that has been pretending and pretending and pretending and pretending, oh, that today you'd strike their heart and they would believe Christ. And that belief would be exhibited through immersion and baptism and the profession of Christ by faith to their local church. And Lord, I pray for every saint in this room that we would be a bit more concerned and sensitive to not only the lost souls around us in and out of the church, but also that we would be more concerned with others than with ourselves. And we pray these things this morning by your Spirit in Christ's name. Amen.